Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Steve. And this is a show where we explore all things plant-based, all things health and curiosities, really. It's about making your life better. This week, we have an exceptional guest, a dear friend of ours, Dr. Alan Desmond. So he's a consultant gastroenterologist, which is a fancy word for a digestion doctor. He's a best-selling author and he's just a remarkable human in that he's able to take leading science and apply it in a real pragmatic, practical, everyday useful way. It really is. Uh, We created a course, Good Health Revolution course with Dr. Alan Desmond, which we've now had more than 25,000 people through across the world. Um, which is, it's a four week course to hold people's hand and help them um, improve their good health. And we actually have a course starting in November the 6th, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. It's with gastroenterologist Dr. Al, it's with dietitian Rosie Martin and Simone Venner. And it's to try to hit good health from a multifaceted way, but ultimately to bring it back to practical everyday things you can do to improve your good health. Our Good Health Revolution course, it's a four week course. It starts next Monday, the 6th of November. And it runs for four weeks, so right the way through November. And it has a full course, which you've got access to the full year with 60 different lessons in it. It's 47% off and just 79 euro. What would your motivating thoughts be to anyone who's considering signing up, Alan? Well, you know, Dave, the reason we designed this whole course was because sadly, most people have no idea how to eat and live for better digestive health. And there is so much confusion. There is so much noise out there online, in the media, in the newspapers about this topic. And people think that it is way too complicated and way out of their reach to live and eat in a way that will support better gut health. What we have poured into the Gut Health Revolution online course is these simple pillars that you can build into your day every single day. We will take you by the hand amongst this wonderful community. So there is a lot, there's a, there's a lot involved. There's a lot involved. Um, the habits that you will learn, the techniques that you will learn aren't complicated, but we get it. They may not be easy either. Someone needs to give you this information to motivate, educate, and support you along the way. And that's why we're here. So, so what? Why not, why not come and join us? So, uh, yeah, without further ado, we give you this uh, today's podcast with the wonderful Dr. Alan Desmond talking all things good health. Drum roll, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the company of greatness. Dr. Alan Desmond, our dear friend, we love you. It's wonderful to have you on this conversation again. Stephen Dave, it's so nice to be back. Um, yeah, I can't wait for it. I can't wait to talk all about gut health, about the gut health revolution online course. And just spending time with you guys and knowing that this has gone out to all of your amazing community is just lovely. Lovely way to start the day. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, well at 7 a.m., we've literally just been for a swim and we had a cup of coffee. I had decaf, Steve, a full calf. Uh, let's kick it off talking about coffee because I'd imagine at this stage you've had at least one cup of coffee. And what's the link between coffee and gut? Because I'm sure everyone listening goes, oh, yeah, I was curious about that, but I don't is really want to know. healthy, is it not? Yeah, we used to think, you know, that coffee was bad for you. This was the classic thing, wasn't it? It was associated with like the type A personality, the businessman, the broker, you know, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, going out for the whiskey after work and all that kind of stuff. So for many years, drinking coffee, particularly black coffee, was was assumed to be an unhealthy thing that would give you a high blood pressure, irregular heart rate, heart attacks and all these sorts of problems. But actually, the latest science on coffee is that essentially coffee is a a health food. It's, it's a very beneficial 
part of a varied plant-based diet or any diet, to be honest. And the reason for that is probably, if you think about it, I mean, we talk about coffee as a bean. Of course, as you guys know, it's actually a fruit, isn't it? It's not technically a bean. But so the coffee is made by taking this little fruit and roasting it and turning it into a brew. And during in that process, you're getting all of these plant-derived uh, nutrients and antioxidants and polyphenols and all these beneficial substances. There's supposed to be about a thousand different beneficial compounds or bio potentially biologically active compounds in every single cup of coffee. We always think about just the caffeine, but there's so many other compounds in a cup of coffee. So when we there was a huge review published on the by the uh, British Medical Journal about four years ago, and in fact on the front cover of the British Medical Journal they have a big cup of coffee, and it says coffee gets a clean bill of health. And what they've done is that I know I have a copy of it in my office. You know, talk about you know positive reinforcement. You know, we love hearing <laughs> good, good news about our bad habits, right? But it, it looked at it. It, it looked at the outcomes in people consuming coffee. And it was one of these huge meta-analyses where they just pulled together all the high-quality studies for years, then mash all the data together and get outcomes. And what they found is that coffee drinkers, um, independent of their other diet and lifestyle factors, tend to be more, more healthy. Now, you could argue that that is because for a lot of people in high-income countries eating a standard Western diet, the old cup of joe might be the only dose of plant-based antioxidants and polyphenols and, and, and other beneficial compounds that they're getting in their day. Maybe there's some truth to that. But certainly individuals who drink coffee are, when it comes to gut health specifically, they are less likely to develop colon cancer. And the antioxidants and polyphenols and the beneficial effects that coffee might have on the gut microbiome seem to have a particular benefit for improving liver health. So people who are regular coffee drinks are much less likely to develop serious problems with their liver, including liver cancer. So there's all of that good science and mechanistic data. And that's that's how we that's how we roll when we're making evidence-based recommendations. We look at the mechanistic stuff, like how does this work? How might this work? But then you look in the real world, you go, yeah, it is actually working. You know, the people who drink coffee are healthier. So then you know you're on to something. But of course, there can be a downside to coffee for some people. So some people may be particularly sensitive to the uh, caffeine that's in coffee. And they may find that it gives them a little bit of heartburn or increases their gut motility a bit too much, sends them running to the bathroom or makes them feel nauseous. So if you find that drinking coffee actually reduces your quality of life and for you impacts negatively on your gut health or leaves you feeling jittery or interferes with your sleep or makes you feel nervous, then you're somebody who just happens to be a little bit more sensitive to caffeine. So you can get all of the other benefits from a good quality decaf and if you just don't like coffee at all, that's that's fine. It's not mandatory. And of course, other um, uh, beverages like herbal teas, etc., um, also are known to have health benefits. So, but in general, if you do like coffee, then having two to three cups of coffee per day is beneficial for your health, and is also linked to reduced risks of heart disease and stroke and other conditions and dementia. Yes. So, so it's a, it's a health it's a health food. It's a health food, but it shouldn't be good as mandatory. I like that. Brilliant. You probably have about four cups a day, don't you? Three. More. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> personally, personally, I, dr I drink six cups per day. Um, <laughs> Just to double, you want to double the health tonic. However, however, um, two to three cups a day is a really nice place to be. 
Brilliant. Nice. Brilliant. I love it. Okay, well, I'd love to go right back to the core and go, Alan Desmond, you're a consultant gastroenterologist. Why do you love being a gastroenterologist and why is gut health so important? I mean, basically, I mean, Dave, really, gut health is really important. That's why it's nice to be a gastroenterologist, because if you have somebody with poor gut health and you can get their gut health back on track, it can be absolutely transformative and revolutionary for that person. You can really, really improve their overall health and get people back to eating and enjoying their food. Because in you know digestion, the, the ability to eat, ingest, chew, enjoy and comfortably digest our food is a very basic human function. So when you look at a plate of food in front of you, what you're actually looking at, you're not just looking at beans, greens and whole grains and legumes and all that good stuff. You're actually looking at the building blocks that your human body is made of. Now, every single day, even as an adult, your body has to regenerate and grow and replace cells every single day. In adults, it's mostly bowel lining cells, red blood cells, but other parts of your body as well. Uh, repair, enzymes, substances are being manufactured. Now, the building blocks that your human body uses to repair itself and grow and, and, and replace every single day, those building blocks come from your food. The food on your plate literally is the stuff that you're made out of. So your digestive system is this incredibly complex and amazing and fascinating system that takes that food and turns it into the building blocks of your human body. So like to eat and digest your food comfortably and efficiently should be regarded as an essential human trait, right? But, but so for everybody listening to this right now or watching, okay, you're going to feel a bit silly doing this at home. But I've done this with big groups when I'm speaking um, to big groups. Just put your hand up and keep it up. If you or one of your loved ones has been affected by gastroesophageal reflux disease or diverticular disease or bowel cancer or symptoms of unexplained constipation, abdominal distension, acid reflux, so-called irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Now, by the time I've said all of those conditions, probably most of the people listening to this podcast are going to put their hands up or thought about putting their hand up. Because in the, in the 21st century, our digestive health has come up against an incredibly tough adversary, the standard Western diet and lifestyle, this highly processed, junk food predominant, plant deficient diet, where we get most of our calories from highly processed foods added fats, added sugars, and animal products. And this seems to be a perfect recipe for poor digestive health. And that's why, as a gastroenterologist, as well as doing all of the important tests, all of the important scans and blood work and stool samples and all that stuff that makes my specialty so interesting, I will also, with Every patient, I will advocate, or if I'm speaking publicly, I will advocate for protecting, preserving, improving, and ensuring excellent digestive health into the future by advocating for eating more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, beans, and leafy greens. We don't need to turn everybody vegan, but we need to get people, everybody, 
eating far more of those healthy vegan foods, those healthy plant-based foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, beans, and leafy greens. And it really makes a difference. So for example, in the UK, people who are vegan are 70% less likely to get diverticular disease, a condition that hospitalizes probably about 33,000 people a year over the UK and Ireland can cause perforation, bleeding, you know, I've, I've looked after people, sadly, who've died from diverticular disease. Wow. We've see, we see studies coming out all the time showing that plant, people whose diets are plant-based, i.e. they don't eat meat or they minimize meat and they eat more plants instead, that those people may up their risk of developing stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer by up to 50%, may cut the risk of bowel cancer by to 80%. And when we put that healthy diet together with a healthy diet and lifestyle, we know, for example, from data published last year, that potentially about 70% of cases of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis could be prevented. So why am I a gastroenterologist? Because very early in my career, I saw how incredibly transformative it was to get people back to good health. Why am I a plant-based gastroenterologist? Because I've read the papers, I've read the data, and I know that this makes a huge difference. And like, guess what? This is also a prescription that reduces your risk of heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, dementia. It's, it's really about whole body health. And that kind of brings us on to the Gut Health Revolution online course, because what I know as a practicing gastroenterologist is that sadly, people in general have no idea how to eat and live for good gut health. And that's not their fault. It's because generally in society, in schools, in, in, in you know, our day-to-day in conversations that we have at home, we don't talk about the basic things, the basic but very, very important powerful things that help to maintain, protect and preserve good gut health now and into the future. And instead, we spend our time rushing around eating highly processed meals, not thinking about our food, not, not focusing on anything to do with gut health. And then when our gut health goes bad, we, you know, go online or, you know, get anecdotes from people or, you know, find some influencer online and think, okay, they've got to figure it out. Now I'm, now I'm going to do what, what they're doing rather than taking a much kind of broader approach, you know? Wow. Amazing. I love the comprehensive like description of like, often we eat every day and we don't realize how central it is. And when it's only when suddenly looking at food, you know, can bring up this fear of digestion discomfort. And it's only when we were in that state that we realize how important, how as a human to sit down and break bread or share food with someone, how nourishing it is, not just for our body, but for our soul. And like when you describe it, it's like, you're so right. You really are. It really is the building blocks. Time to pay the bills now. Um, as we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate this, this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of 
Individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think 100 it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh, if anyone does want to try them out uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 and you have nothing to worry about they're offering a 100 day return policy so if you don't like your Vivo Barefoot you can return them free of charge yeah so check them out VivoBarefoot.com full range of shoes for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between so 15% off HAPPYPAIR15 one thing that I'd love to dig into next is inflammation. So inflammation is something that I've often heard as described as the root of all diseases. And it's something that the standard Western diet seems to proliferate inflammation. And I wonder if you could talk about inflammation in the gut and how we can move away from inflammation and move away from lifestyle disease. Yeah, it's something I'm asked about all the time, actually. This whole concept that we can eat in a certain way to reduce inflammation. That's really important to understand that inflammation is an, an important and natural process, and it's an essential human response. It's one of the things our body does um, when it has a challenge. So if your body is exposed to a toxic agent, a poison, a damaging substance, I mean, um, for example, alcohol would be, would be a good example of that. Or even if you're injured, you know, if you fall over and you bump your knee or you break your arm or whatever, um, the inflammatory, the acute inflammatory response, if you're facing an infection like a chest infection or pneumonia or whatever, the inflammatory response that comes with from your body is really, really important to eliminate the toxic agent and begin the process of repairing any damaged tissue. But once that threat has been dealt with, those inflammatory mechanisms are no longer needed and they're supposed to switch off. So that's acute short-term inflammation. So if some of those inflammatory um, mechanisms in your body remain active, your body can enter a state of what's commonly referred to as chronic inflammation. Now, the word chronic just means long-term over time, prolos over time. And so the long-term presence of a low-grade inflammatory response. Now, this chronic inflammation, in contrast, is an abnormal and unhealthy state to be in. And chronic inflammation is, a, in many ways, a kind of a unifying problem that we see in many, many, many chronic diseases in high-income countries, in countries where we eat this global standard diet and have these busy 21st century lifestyles. The state of chronic inflammation seems to play a role in everything from ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease to coronary artery disease, dementia, uh, depression, etc. It's a, it's a unifying driver or a unifying contributor to so many conditions. And yes, the foods that we choose to eat play a tremendous role in helping to promote or reduce chronic inflammation. So for example, higher consumption of animal fat, you know, the saturated fat and cholesterol fats that we get from eating meat and the animal protein that we get from animal products has been shown to promote inflammation in both the gut itself, but also throughout the body. And the effect that those foods exert in your gut microbiome was shown very clearly back in 2014. For example, one of the research teams who looked at this was a team at Harvard and the University of California 
and they got um, healthy volunteers to eat a very unhealthy diet just for four days, guys, right? And everything they were eating for those four days um, was eggs, meat, bacon, and cheese. So they were on a kind of a, a, a ketogenic slash carnivore diet High for just four days. Fat, low fiber. Zero fiber. Zero fiber. Because wow. there isn't any fiber. There isn't any fiber at all in animal products. And that's all they were eating for those four days. And within 24 hours of adopting this animal-based diet, this completely fiber-deficient diet, and this was, to be fair, this diet didn't have any junk food in it. There was no artificial additives. There was no maltodextrins or anything like that. This was, you know, eggs, meat, bacon, okay, and cheese. And within four days, they'd seen very significant negative effects in the gut microbiome. In fact, within 24 hours, their pro-inflammatory bacteria within their gut microbiome began to flourish. But then can we, what if we dial it all the way over to the other side, you know, a healthy plant-based diet? Well, if you get your calories from plants, you're maximizing your intake of anti-inflammatory compounds and antioxidants like flavonoids, carotenoids, vitamin C, vitamin E. And a plant-based diet is also naturally higher in the healthy unsaturated fats that we get from plants. And it's lower in the pro-inflammatory saturated fats and doesn't contain any of the heme iron that we only get from animal products. So it's about creating a gut, you know, a gut milieu, a, a gut microbiome that's you know, not conducive to chronic inflammation. But in fact, it begins even before the gut microbiome. When you start absorbing your iron, the, the heme iron is pro-inflammatory in your body. The non-heme iron that we get from plants isn't pro-inflammatory. So it's no surprise that multiple markers of chronic inflammation are lower in people who eat a plant-based, especially an exclusively plant-based diet, because almost by definition, the sort of diet that, that we both promote, which is a, a majority um, unprocessed plant-based diet, really ticks all the right boxes. You know, It really is an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, so the food we eat has a huge, a huge impact. But so do other habits. And you know, it, if anyone has taken the Gut Health Revolution online course, they they learn that we don't just talk about food, although food is really important. We've got you know we've got all the healthy recipes from you guys, all these delicious higher fiber, low fat meals with a diversity of plants, no junk food. You can. Do the step up slowly, or just only eat some of the food if you want. You don't have to do. You don't have to go exclusively plant based. Well, that option is there, but also we deal with the mindfulness side with Simone, who does the the importance of mindful meditation and the calming the gut brain axis, which also may help to reduce chronic inflammation. And then we got you guys covering the gut healthy lifestyle, physical activity, time in nature, immunity. And then for the nerds, and hopefully everyone listening to this is a gut health, nerd, gut health nerd, the fourth thing we have is we've got me and Rosie in the gut health classroom, really talking about a lot of the stuff that we've just been talking about, um, about reducing inflammation, all the complexities, trying to make all of this complicated stuff easy for people, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, one, one, one thing I think which we need to talk about with gut health is, um, is fiber. Fiber because like oh yeah m most people most people are very focused on protein you know there's protein shakes there's added protein in so many different things and people are concerned about not getting enough protein 
But from my understanding, most people don't get enough fiber on a, a daily basis. And most people don't really like the average person, you know, we'll go into classrooms, we'll go in and do talks and we'll say, what is fiber? And people like, they they kind of they think it's bran flakes or they think it's Weetabix or fiber is mm. I don't know what it is it's cereals or it's something so what is fiber and why is it so important for good health? Yeah, so fiber is basically the skeleton of a plant if you want to look at it that way. You know, these are the structural carbohydrates that are only found in plants. We call it fiber, you know, and there's insoluble fiber, there's soluble fiber, there's resistant starches, and there's a whole variety and it's like a whole um, uh, range of everything in between. You know, there's some fibers where people can't agree. Is, is this a soluble or an insoluble fiber or is it a starch? You know, it, it's quite a complicated area. But these are structural carbohydrates that are only found in plants. Now, they're actually, we used to think that fiber was just like a, a scrubbing brush to make sure that you don't get constipated, you know, just to push everything through. And there is still a bit of truth to that. I mean, if you don't get enough um, insoluble fiber in your diet, you're very likely to end up, you know, being constipated and bunged up and not able to get to the bathroom enough. Never mind all the other negative health effects that having a fiber deficient diet has on your body. But the fiber in our diet is so important because our gut loves fiber and our gut microbiome loves fiber. So we talked earlier about our digestive system and how incredible and, and you know, flexible it is. So we've got, that starts with our powerful jaw muscles, our teeth. We've got the hydrochloric acid in our stomach, which is almost as powerful as battery acid. We've got the cold battery acid. Almost as powerful as battery acid. We, we've got the digestive enzymes, uh, a whole cocktail of those produced by our pancreas and our saliva. But our body's really good at digesting food, and it's very, it can basically turn its hand to anything. We can, we, can all, we can digest so many different foods, right? Even foods that are really unhealthy, we can digest them. But all of those mechanisms are pretty powerless when it comes to digesting the structural carbohydrates found only in plants that we call fiber. And that job has been handed over to our gut microbes, the, you know, the trillions of bacteria that live mostly in our large bowel. And they do that process. They break down that fiber and digest it incredibly efficiently. And when we serve our microbes a steady supply of fiber-rich foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, leafy greens, seeds, unprocessed plants, we immediately, for example, boost the production of beneficial postbiotic substances like short-chain fatty acids. These are substances that we only get from our gut microbes. You can't get them by, you can't actually eat these substances. You have to feed your body healthy food to maximize your production of them. And, you know, the short-chain fatty acids that make, that our, our microbiome make when we eat a healthy fiber and diverse diet actually gives our human body a lot of benefits, incredible benefits, right? So 70% of the energy that comes to the, that is needed by the cells that line our large bowel is provided by short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, made by our gut microbes. So without enough short-chain fatty acids, the lining of our gut becomes unhealthy and more permeable, so-called leaky gut, allowing the contents of our gut and bacterial end products to enter our bloodstream, contributing to chronic inflammation, which we spoke about earlier, and contributing to increased risk of problems like heart disease. The, the short-chain fatty acids that are made by our gut when we eat a diversity of fiber 
help to regulate the incredibly complex immune system of the gut. As you guys know, 70% of our body's immune system resides in the lining of our bowel. And our short-chain fatty acids help to prevent that immune system from becoming overactive or hypersensitive, helping to prevent conditions like Crohn's disease. The short-chain fatty acids also bind specifically to special lining cells in the gut that are designed to bind to short-chain fatty acids. That is, your gut microbes communicating very directly with special uh, cells, special human cells lining your gut. And by binding, by doing so, help to promote the production of chemicals called GLP-1 and peptide YOI. Now, these are signaling chemicals that enter our bloodstream and affect our brain and our appetite and help control our blood sugars. Um, you know, you may have heard about all the coverage about these uh, new weight loss drugs, these appetite suppressants. Um, yeah. So they they focus on the same mechanism. They're GLP-1 agonists. Um, so they're trying to tap in to that fiber microbiome brain motility access that already exists in humans, but has been really badly abused by the standard Western diet, I guess. And this is kind of a shortcut to kind of make make that system like super active to help people to regulate their appetite when their appetite has been become completely dysregulated, you know? Wow. But there's, we could talk about the benefits of fiber and why choosing to fuel your body with fiber is so important for hours we have done before on previous episodes. But, you know, I guess the take home is sadly 90% of adults don't consume nearly enough fiber. In fact, people, you said earlier about protein deficiency, people taking protein shakes and all that kind of thing. But in fact, any gastroenterologist will tell you that fiber deficiency is the number one dietary deficiency that we see in our clinics. And you can, by simply aiming to eat more healthy vegan food, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, you can start to correct that fiber deficiency gradually. And, you know, thanks to your wizardry in the kitchen, all of the, you know, if you do one of the Gut Health Revolution meal plans, for example, you you can build up to between 50 to 70 grams of fiber per day, which is the sort of uh, level of dietary fiber consumption we see in, in the healthiest populations in the world, you know. Um, if anyone wants to listen back to your previous episode with Dan Butner, you know, he talks all about that, about how that's that kind of 50 plus grams of fiber per day. Seems seems to be the uh, the sweet spot, you know. Yeah, because the average intake is somewhere between sixteen and eighteen percent, or sixteen to eighteen grams per day. Versus if you're eating a vegan diet, you'd be around forty four grams, and on the Good Health Revolution, you'd be pushing fifty, even to sixty or seventy. Fifty, sixty. Yes, you're right. So the so the average um, omnivore um, eat gets about you know yeah about twenty twenty or less grams of fiber per day. The average vegan gets about 40 grams of fiber per day. But the average whole food plant-based eater who who maybe doesn't apply that label or, or call themselves vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or whatever, but they are absolutely focusing on those healthy vegan foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, avoiding the junk food and minimizing or eliminating animal products entirely if they wish. They're going to be hitting 50 to 70 grams of fiber per day. So they are going to be uh, well on their way to microbiome superpowers, you know. I'd love to talk about dairy and the gut, like milk and the gut, because milk, yeah. you know, you'll often hear people go, oh, well, milk, like it soothes my gut or yogurt soothes my gut or whatnot. And I just wondered, what is the reality of 
of dairy products and the gut? What is the impact on them? Are they beneficial? Are they negative? What's what's your kind of take on it? Because I guess there's such yeah. such a part of the modern Western diet. They're probably 20% of calories for many people who eat it at standard Western diet. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, as I said earlier, the standard Western diet's pretty much designed to cause poor digestive health. And I believe that a huge component of that gut unfriendliness is the high intake of dairy, particularly the high intake of dairy milk that has taken for granted in high income countries, thanks to the way that our economy and food systems work, right? And I mean, there's no doubt that milk has been important culturally and economically for a long, long time. And I think if you delve into the reasons behind all of that, you, you find out that it's got nothing to do with human health really in the modern era, and certainly nothing to do with digestive health in the modern era. It's more about cultural and economic reasons, right? Now, milk, I'm gonna say something very controversial. Are you ready? Yes, hit us out. Milk is for babies. No way. As in breast milk. Way. As in breast milk. As way. in milk. I like way. No way. No, no, but, but milk, milk, unless you're talking about a plant-based milk, Dave, all, all mammalian milk is breast milk, right? So so human milk, cow's milk, uh, goat milk, dog milk, elephant milk, whatever, whatever, elephant milk, whatever you're talking about, any mammal that makes milk, they're making it for their baby, right? And when it comes to humans, Milk is for human babies. You know, when we're little babies, and um, this is very relevant to you at the moment, David, yeah, God yeah. knows, so with, 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 with a little baby in the house, of course, and milk is for babies. And human mothers produce breast milk um, to feed their little babies. And if there's an issue with the breast milk and mom isn't able to feed, then we're very lucky that we have these replacement milks that are also made from, uh, from other forms of breast milk, from cow's milk or other milks. Um, or sometimes made from soya and made to mimic the contents of breast milk so that the baby can still get the benefits of drinking milk. So milk contains a sugar called lactose, a sugar which is produced, which is broken down by the baby's gut into simple sugars called glucose and galactose. Now, in order for a baby to, because a baby needs a lot of energy, needs a lot of energy, for all of that growing that's happening, okay? So breast milk is very high in sugar, very high in lactose. And the baby breaks that down using enzymes called lactase enzymes. And a baby's gut produces a lot of that enzyme because babies eat exclusively milk. And as they get older, and as they move beyond the point where they are breastfeeding and they start to move on gradually on to solid foods and start enjoying the foods that their mom and dad and brothers and sisters enjoy, those lactase enzymes begin to reduce quite dramatically. And once we've aged out of breastfeeding, we no longer leave, need those enzymes and your, your gut stops making them. And at that point, if we consume a significant amount of breast milk, whether it's human or cow, as an adolescent or adult, that lactose doesn't get digested. That milk sugar doesn't get digested. And it arrives in her bowel and it feeds bacteria, leading to this kind of bacterial overgrowth, bloating, diarrhea, and chronic inflammation. At least that's true for about 70% of the world's adult population. Now, due to a genetic quirk, 
the world's Caucasians, so white Europeans, remain abnormally lactose tolerant into adulthood. So for most white Europeans or Caucasians or people descended from Europeans, they are able to consume the lactose into adulthood. But even in these individuals, even in Caucasians or white Europeans, by the time they're in their 30s or 40s, they're very aware of the fact that if they drink a pint of milk or have a milkshake, that they're going to get bloating and indigestion and maybe diarrhea. And that's the inherent human state of being lactose intolerant, which is the normal, healthy human. And beyond that, I mean, this is an issue I see at my clinic all the time. I, I had a, I'll tell you an, an anecdote from clinic this week. I mean, I saw a young woman this week who has been seeing gastroenterologists for 10 years. Wow. And she and she had very significant digestive health problems that began when she was a teenager. She's telling me that she was doing sports as a teenager and her uh, her coach noticed the symptoms. That's when they first came to light during her teens. And she would get bloating and her belly would distend and she'd have an urgent need to go to the toilet. She would never have a formed bowel movement. She always kind of needed to know where the bathroom is. And of course, because she had symptoms, which is a really sensible thing to do, she'd seen her doctor, she'd gotten checked out. And over the 10 years, she'd had CT scans, MRI scans, endoscopies, duodenal biopsies, and two colonoscopies and a test called a small bowel capsule endoscopy. Now, all of those tests are very helpful, and these are things that I use all the time at my clinic, but her symptoms hadn't improved. So she'd been had all of these checks. She'd seen tons of doctors who had given her the, the line, you know, oh, you have irritable bowel syndrome. You just have to get used to it. So she came to see me because she said, look, I've been told I just have to get used to this, but I'd like to look a bit further into it. Why am I, you know, why do I have this problem? And, you know, we went through a dietary survey and, you know, she liked consuming milk, dairy milk, and had been educated to believe that that's a normal, healthy thing for adults to consume. And so she'd already had every test we could think of. Maybe we did a few more, which came back normal. But for her, it was just having the permission to quit dairy milk is what resolved her symptoms. And I, I see that at clinic all the time people getting their digestive health back by simply stopping with the breast milk. And, you know, we know that about 40% of patients who've been given a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome will readily identify dairy milk as a trigger for them. And more than 50% of people with these unexplained abdominal symptoms will, if, they, if you do a test for lactose intolerance, um, they'll come back positive for that test. So, Dairy-free is one of the first steps I take, but many of my patients at clinic, and it's often incredibly successful. And no surprise then that all of the recipes in the Gut Health Revolution course and all of the recipes in your book and all of the recipes in my book are dairy-free because, again, controversially, milk is for babies. I like the way you full circle there, Al. Very dairy sweet, milk. very good. And when you're saying dairy milk, you're not talking about chocolate bars. You're talking about just cow's milk. Isn't that right? Or, just or goat milk or elephant milk or rat yes. milk, whatever your form of breast milk yeah. of choice. 
Yeah, and I think people who drink milk, when they hear you saying things like, oh, goat milk or rat milk or dog milk, they might feel a bit triggered, you know? They might say, oh, are you saying that I'm, you know, rat milk makes me feel nauseous, but I like to have, you know, lovely, frosty, fat-free milk in the morning out of the fridge. But if you if you really think of it, I think if you just, the next time you pick up a carton of dairy milk, um, just think to yourself, milk is for babies. It's 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 bloody obvious, you know. So so although humans have developed a lot of cultural reasons, and you know, to, to be to be quite honest, and you know, it's maybe it's a topic for another guest or another podcast. I think the fact that white Europeans tolerate milk much better than any other race in the world has a lot to do with the fact that dairy milk is promoted globally as something that makes you healthy, when there's no evidence to suggest that it is. Um, but for the very vast majority of people, um, they just can't stomach milk, uh, dairy milk. Um, so promoting it as a global health food is very dishonest and inherently discriminatory. Um, but for even for white Caucasians, um, that lactose, the, the fact that milk is for babies will certainly catch up with you by the time you're in your 20s, 30s or 40s, in my experience. And Al, does that, does that count equally for cheese, for butter, for, you know, the similar food group that fit in the category of dairy? Like, so cheese is yeah. equally as unhealthy, cream, butter. Sure. I mean, there, there are other reasons to limit your consumption of those foods. Um, because they increase your uh, your consumption of animal products, they may increase your consumption of saturated fats. They may contribute to a high fat diet, which is one of the issues that um, can cause problems for people with digestive health problems as well, with bile acid malabsorption and other problems. Um, but with those fermented dairy products, like yogurts, for example. The fermentation process has broken down most of the lactose. So the reason we have fermented products is, is essentially to do that. So to break down all of the lactose so that you don't get bloated and uncomfortable after you consume them. But even so, I mean, yogurt is often put out there as a universally healthy food. But there have been several studies showing that yogurt consumption promotes the growth of unhealthy bacteria within the gut microbiome. It's by no means settled science that yogurt consumption is good for your gut microbiome, while there are a lot of people promoting it. And in addition, you know, um, when we look at all of the evidence of health outcomes in yogurt consumers, and there was a Cochrane review of this a few years ago, the, uh, the Cochrane Collaboration is a big independent scientific group that will perform systematic reviews on important health topics. Um, when there's a Cochrane review of yogurt consumption and health a few years ago, it basically came down and said, yeah, we, do, we don't have any good evidence that yogurt is actually good for you. Um, in fact, many of the intervention studies that have gotten people to eat yogurt um, as part of a weight loss plan finds that people who add yogurt to diet actually gain weight. Um, so there, it, it's not settled science that foods like yogurts and cheeses are good for you. Of course, when you're eating any food, uh, Dave, uh, or sorry, Steve asked that question, it's, um, it's really about not is this food healthy, but is it healthier than something else I could be eating and enjoying? And if we're taking a lot of our daily calories from things like cheeses or cheese sauces or some of the other fermented dairy products, then we are potentially missing out on calories that could be coming from healthier plant-based sources. There's no fiber in dairy products, for example. And so for me, it's all about looking at, okay, this is healthy. So 
having a um, having a glass of milk is certainly healthier than starting my day with a glass of wine. Uh, so it's healthier than that. But is water a better thing to drink? Absolutely. Is black coffee healthier to drink or, or decaf or tea healthier to drink than milk? Absolutely. Is there somewhere else that I could get my calories from and I could enjoy eating those and they would benefit from benefit my gut health? Absolutely. Or even oat milk versus or a plant-based milk versus say a breast milk. How do they compare? Well, it depends very much on the plant milk that you're consuming. Um, so because everyone equates milk with calcium, which is a whole other discussion, which again is about advertising, there's there's no science showing that milk builds better bones. That's just advertising, um, not science. Because everyone equates milk with calcium, most of the plant-based milks have calcium added to them to give people that reassurance that they're not missing out. But if you're going for a plant-based milk and you're, you're just viewing that as something purely about a culinary convention, I like having milk for my tea, my coffee, or I like to use milk in recipes. It shouldn't really be viewed as an important part of your daily nutrition. So you might look at a oat milk and say, oh, look, the, um, the full-fat dairy milk contains more protein per serving than this particular brand of oat milk or soy milk, for example. But that, that's interesting, yes. But I don't think we should be viewing milk as an important part, important part of our nutrition on a daily basis. If you want to use it from a culinary perspective, then any plant milk should be absolutely fine. Um, but like all foods, just watch out for plant milks that add things like malted dextrin, carboxymethylcellulose, and um, emulsifiers, et cetera. Probably going for it. I mean, if I say to you, go for the least processed one you can find with the least number of ingredients that you can find, that's a really good advice. Some people, they'll come back and, and say, yeah, but now it's just water with a bit of oats in it. Should, there's no nutrition in that. My response to that is milk shouldn't be part of your plan for your daily nutrition anyway, because milk is for babies. We need to be looking at the food on our plate when we're looking for sources of protein and calcium. Very, Very good. good. You're I so know. consistent. You're amazing. You really, really are. Okay, good uh, health revolution. Well, no, no, no. I want, uh, I want, before that, I just want to talk about fasting because fasting is one thing that we were super okay, into. Yeah, we we cool. were super into fasting as back in our early 20s, we both did like seven day fasts and we used to fast one day a week and we were, we used to go on three day fasts with dad. Like we got really into it. And wow. now with family life, we it hasn't been, it hasn't featured as much in our life, but certainly we found the benefits for ourselves, you know, physically and emotionally and all the various aspects that have brought and it. And it even used to be a medical practice back, you know, back a hundred years ago. It was a traditional practice with which one used to help cure some illnesses. Yeah. And to help. And yeah. breakfast is breaking the fast, you know, fast. And, and there's, nowadays there's also, it's like there is, there's the, you know, there's, um, different time restricted eating which is a form of fasting and, and there's lots of different things so I'd love to love if you could talk you know summarize about fasting and good health or is it good is it bad what is your experience what are the meta analysis any kind of inputs there would be great we definitely hear a lot about it don't we? we we hear a lot about the many potential benefits of intermittent fasting so from a gut perspective that means that we're giving our gut a break and it does seem like the science is pretty consistent that if we ensure that we do have periods of time when we're not eating food, then that probably helps to reduce chronic inflammation. It may help promote healthy weight loss. 
improve blood sugar control. And there's been some data showing that it may even help to promote DNA repair and slow aging. So that all sounds very, very positive. But I think the message that I'd like people to hear, and it's the message that we're very consistent on, is that achieving a healthy diet isn't about eating less food necessarily. It's about eating more of the foods that are proven to benefit human health, these unprocessed foods of plant origin. So that, for me, that has to come first before we look at fasting. So you maybe have to harness some health benefits, no matter what your dietary practice is, by building in some periods where you're not putting food into your gut. But what's far, far, far more important and powerful is thinking about the foods that you are putting into your gut on a daily basis, whether that's one, two, three, or four times per day. Now, there's no doubt that our gut microbiome and our digestive system uh, both do benefit from having these kind of periods of housekeeping and tidying up that occurs when you're not eating. But the human body already has that built in. You know, we can harness those benefits and give our gut a time without food, but without skipping a meal. And it's really about listening to our natural daily wake and sleep cycles, because in, in my belief, our body already builds in all the intermittent fasting time that our gut needs. We call it sleep. So, for example, if you make it your habit to avoid eating after your evening meal, so you finish eating by 7 p.m., and if you don't snack before breakfast and have your breakfast at maybe 7 a.m., that's 12 hours of fasting in your daily routine. And that doesn't sound too difficult, right? So finish your evening meal by 7 p.m. and then have breakfast at 7 a.m. That's 12 hours fasting every single day without skipping a single healthy meal. And I would really put the emphasis on the quality of food that you are eating rather than trying to build an extra time in your day when you're not eating anything. Great clarification. It's so really, practical, really pragmatic. Well, well you're advice. consistently coming back to whole plant foods. Eat your whole plant foods. They're high in fiber. They're beneficial to your gut. Okay, good health revolution. Back about, Jesus, is it six years ago, Al? Could be seven. Okay, back in the past, a good few years ago, we, we, we were chatting to you at the Rich Roll. Rich Roll did a live podcast. I think, were we a part mm. of it? Yeah, we could have been a part of it. I can't remember anyway. We yeah, didn't you, were, you were there. I yeah, that was at um, that lovely venue um, right down Alley. in Dublin City Centre. Smock Alley, just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah beautiful. And, and after that, we got talking. We had done our Happy Heart course. Good Health was starting to become really popular. It was starting to become much more in the, the popular psyche. And it was kind of like, okay, Al, you're, yeah. you're a good doctor, aren't you? I wonder, could we do a course together to start addressing kind of good health issues? And we came up with, back originally, it was called the Happy Good Course. And now we've kind of moved it on. Having had about 20,000 people through it, we've moved it on to where it's called the Good Health Revolution. And it kind of brings in, as you said, I think it's about 70% of IBS comes from stress or stress is a huge contributing factor. So partnered with um, Simone Venner to bring it's in Simone, that, yeah, Simone, Simone and then dietitian yeah. Rosie Martin to help kind of address the specifics around what people are eating. And you're the consultant gastroenterologist and where the food bit. But there's been about 20,000 people through it and it really has been a practical tool to help people address their gut health without having to necessarily go you know, many people have good health, but they don't know where to start. And it's a simple starting place where people can try lifestyle medicine to address and improve their gut health. 
Absolutely. And I'm, the thing is, I mean, when we initially designed the course in the first iteration, the Happy Gut course, we only talked about food. But as Rosie and I reflected on our practices, you know, in the real world, of course, food is super important, but we also wanted to address some other pillars of gut health. And that's why we have the Gut Healthy Kitchen. We have Calming the Gut Brain Axis with mindfulness, gut-specific mindfulness with Simone. It's why we have you guys focusing on the other gut-healthy lifestyle um, factors, physical activity, time and nature. And then, of course, you know, like I said earlier, you can nerd out with me and Rosie in the Gut Health Classroom content, where we talk all about things like SIBO and lectins and bacterial overgrowth and dysbiosis and try to demystify all of these buzzwords that you, that you hear online and try to give people really practical advice. And you know what I'm really, really proud of in the course is the fact that we also have sections on talking to your doctor about gut health and red flag symptoms that you should really discuss with your doctor and the sort of important tests that you might like to ask your doctor if they're appropriate for you. Because so many people are so embarrassed to go and talk to their doctor when they do have gut health problems. And often there's so many digestive health problems um, of varying degrees, whether that's acid reflux, whether that's diverticular disease, inflammatory bowel disease, or even bowel polyps or colon cancer, that early detection is really, really important. So I don't want people to be embarrassed to talk to their doctor about gut health. And I'm really, really proud that the Gut Health Revolution online course is very clear that we're providing entertaining and educational insights into issues around digestive health, healthy food, and healthy lifestyle. But I think probably for me, the most important aspect to it that comes towards the end of the course, where we really do give people the the kind of uh, the guidance and the encouragement to go and talk to their doctor about their gut health worries. And we've had numerous people through the course who have contacted me on social media to say, thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed the course, but it gave me the courage to go and talk to my doctor. And then this problem was detected and sorted out. So I love that. And also the most, probably the, the most, we talked about the different aspects of the course, you know, the food, the mindfulness, the, the lifestyle, the classroom. But by far, I think the most powerful thing is the community and being part of that community and having that community support. And that's why I'm so like stoked that we're kind of relaunching and re-energizing the course. And we're kind of all going to jump in there together and go through those six weeks together as a group. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, November the 6th we start and we've got this five different sessions, which is really good live sessions. Like we're kicking it off together, the three of us. On, on top the, of the course. Yeah, on top of the course. Yeah, there's the actual, the, like there is the modules which you can go through over the year, but there's... Uh, you know, we're kicking it off. We've got a kickoff event November the 6th. And on the 7th, we're doing cooking for good health. We're doing a class on that. We're doing a cook along, a good health cook along. You're doing a Q&A again. And then we're finishing up with a fermentation session on how to make homemade probiotics. So it's very exciting. Oh, it is exciting. It is exciting. I can't wait to get into it. It's going to be gorgeous. Yeah. So uh, Al, this has been an absolute pleasure. It really, really has. You're uh, amazing. You really are. You're like ChatGPT for good health and for just health at large. And the practical application, I think that's the bit that you really you really shine a light on just how to, it's not just theory, it's actually, you know, you have a family that actually eat a plant-based diet time, day in, day again. You, you practice what you preach, which is beautiful. Oh, thanks guys. I'm feeling the love this morning. Thank you very much. And sending it all back to you as well. 
But it, it's so important because, you know, we, we can talk about all this amazing science, you know, and we can show slides and diagrams and meta-analyses and gut microbiome studies. But, but at the end of the day, people just need to know, well, that's fine. But what are the actual simple, practical things that I can do each day? And to be fair, although the course is amazing, we are basically just giving people the permission and the tools and the confidence to implement what are at the end of the day, pretty simple changes and pretty simple habits that aren't going to take up a whole lot of time. But thanks to our standard Western global standard diet and busy lifestyles, these fairly simple and basic aspects of maintaining gut health have become less and less easy. And for many people, they feel almost impossible. So we're here to say, actually, it's not impossible. And we're going to hold your hand, bring you through it, and make you part of this community, which is just such a, a powerful, powerful tool. Amazing. Al, you're brilliant. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mel.